Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this podcast, I'm talking to Mthamiri Nkemi. Mthamiri has recently cut two feature films drawing critical acclaim in the UK, The Last Tree and Blue Story. His unique approach has also led to editing on the UK series The Pale Horse, which is based on Agatha Christie's novel of the same name. Today, we discuss how he got started in editing and the unique aspects of editing both The Last Tree and Blue Story. I was just looking at your IMDb page. You have more projects done than anybody that's 60 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I just got into it when when I was really young and then just said yes to a lot of things. Yeah, which is really great. I mean, it's a good opportunity to just work with a lot of different kinds of people. That's fantastic. It, It goes to something that I tell people that are wondering, like, how do I break in? How do I get better? I just say, you have to sit in the chair and do a lot of work. And that seems exactly like what you've done. Yes, yeah, I fully, fully agree. I think you get to, you get the opportunity to make all the mistakes like quite early on. So hopefully you don't make them later down the line. That's my thinking anyway. Exactly. So um, Blue Story, did that start as a YouTube series? Did you work on the YouTube series? No, no. So I wasn't involved at all. So the director, Ratman, he'd be making sort of different YouTube uh, series for a while, I think like six years ago. And then he... Uh, eventually, later down the line, got money, got funding from Paramount to make this, to make it as a feature. And then that's when I came on board. So that was when the first time I met him. With the variety and range of projects that you do, do you find a lot of different working styles of how you have to work, either with an assistant, without an assistant, with various types of coverage? Blue Story was kind of the second film I'd done on a, a professional level, basically, where, where we had, where I had an assistant and, you know, it was done for, done for a studio. And, and so I'm still kind of working out what my different like, sort of workflows are, but it's definitely been a case so far of each project has been a totally different kind of system and way of working and, and working out that has been, yeah, the challenge for each project. Ratman, did you, uh, that was something a studio put together? How did that relationship start? He, so he made uh, a video series, a YouTube series uh, called Shiro's Story that um, basically went viral online. And then he was getting contacted by a lot of different studios asking him, uh, basically, can we, can we help make this into a Netflix series? Can we do something with it? And he'd had this other script that he'd written called Blue Story that he'd written actually before that, um, that he kind of been sitting in his back pocket for a while. And then his producer got in touch with him, Damien Jones, who basically was the first person that asked him, what are you doing? What, what else do you have apart from this thing that you've done? Um, and then he then sort of raps, then pulled out Blue Story and uh, then they went to, went to Paramount and Paramount agreed to help fund it. Uh, Paramount was by, funded by Paramount and BBC Films. Yeah, months passed with development and then Joy. So Joy is the other producer. Um, she then got in touch with me because she'd seen my last film, The Last Tree, um, and liked it. So 
she sort of offered this to me is, would you like to do, would you like to work with Ratman and me on, on this film? You have done a ton of projects. How did those projects lead up to The Last Tree? Yes, actually, it was a really good uh, combination and collaboration over quite a few years. I met the director actually when I was 17, I think, when I was doing a kind of film course. It was before I went to university and studied properly, but it was that, there was like this uh, sort of boot camp film course for 16 to 19-year-olds, and it was the first year they'd started it. And on the course, I met the uh, this director, Sholemu, who'd... Um, he just graduated from film school and he was helping out as a kind of staff mentor person. And so we met then, just really hit it off, basically. Uh, and then I ended up working on a short with him, um, a really, really like tiny, low-budget feature um, called A Moving Image. Uh, and just sort of kept in touch over the years. And then just where after, I, after I'd been to film school, just the year I graduated, he then came back to me saying that he just got some funding from the BFI to make uh, this feature, The Last Three, which he was really excited about. And would I like to get involved? Because it's really, really great timing, basically. So, well, it's uh, preparation meets uh, opportunity, right? Yes, yes, completely. Did you ever assist anyone or have you always been straight into the editor's chair? Interesting, I kind of, I think I came at it like a slightly different route where I kind of in between uh, university and then my um, and then going to film school, I was working at a advertising post-production facility. Um, so I was an assistant, uh, but for commercials. And, and I think actually that's where I kind of learned. That's when I first started learning about project structure and organisation and all that kind of stuff. And so I feel like actually that's fed into how I... I think it's changed a bit now, but uh, I think a lot about how I think is, has come from that sort of mentality, actually. Um, just in terms of like select roles and kind of the stuff I was doing as an assistant in commercials is kind of sort of fed into how I work with films now. Um, how do you approach uh, your editing when you get rushes in, in in a day and you're looking at a blank timeline? What do you do? I mean, I like to organize everything in bin, so I'll have that. So I'll have that set up in in Avid, uh, and but then I won't actually edit from the bins. Usually, I'll uh, create select roles. So I'll put, I'll put each shot down on the timeline and kind of watch it through, watch it all through and make notes. And I think, it, I mean, it depends on the kind of film it is and how it's shot. Like, I think The Last Tree was quite non-conventional in the way it was shot and there wasn't really, like, a here's a master, here's the close-up, you know, here, here's the two-shot. It changed, it varied a lot depending on each scene. So I'd kind of be going, from that select role, uh, be kind of choosing those moments that I felt really sort of got to the essence of the of the scene and then from there duplicate that and start working on the assembly. So tell me a little bit more about The Last Tree. You're explaining that the coverage is a little bit different. How exactly was it different? Was it just multiple, was it multi-camera and more like a moving camera? I'm Pretty much moving almost constantly, I think, throughout the film, a lot of, a lot of steady cam. Basically, the director had this idea that uh, he wanted the film is very much this, this kind of internal subjective experience of the main character, um, and so he wanted the sort of visual language of the film to represent that. So it was very much kind of long uh, tracking shots following the main character through each scene, and uh, from kind of from behind and from in front, and and trying to get 
kind of sense of like what he's experiencing in each scene. Well, yeah, rather than sort of traditional sort of masters or anything like that. And so when it came to editing that, it was very much it's very much a case of like picking out the kind of those moments that were fitting together and working out to fit them together because it would never be it kind of never be the same take sort of take by take. There's a lot, yeah, a lot of uh, adapting to how the actor was moving around the scene. What were some of the challenges as, or, or solutions when you were having mm-hmm. those kind of issues of, oh my gosh, this take is not the same? Is it the actors weren't saying the same lines or is it the camera movement was different or the continuity? Continuity is pretty great. Actually, we had a really great supervisor who was quite on top of that stuff. Um, there definitely were a few scenes where we were quite heavy improv, but mostly it was kind of the physical movement of the actor that would vary from, from, from shot to shot and from take to take kind of having to let continuity go a bit uh, and kind of have the essence and the feeling of those shots to make sure that was lining up. So that was, that was an emotional thread rather than a... Yeah, absolutely. I just talked to Walter Murch and he was yes. saying, you know, it's the, it, the continuity is the least of your worries. Like as long as the feeling is there and as long as you've got the vibe of the scene, don't worry yeah. about it. Yes. I'm 100% in Walter Murch's camp. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about doing the shorts. You've done a lot of shorts. Are those things that you just want to get in the chair, that you hope to meet a good director? What are the, what are the kind of the purposes of doing all the shorts that you've done? Um, I guess it was a mixture of things. I think I was just really excited. Uh, I am really excited, but I started, I started out just being excited about getting as much experience as possible and working with a big range of people to try and work out like what I was interested in. Anytime I heard about anyone making a sh- directing a short, I'd be like, oh yes, I'll, 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 I'll cut it. Um, and, and so I worked with a lot of first-time directors actually, which I think was really, really useful because um, aside from the whole technical and creative side of editing, I, I learned that there's a, a kind of diplomatic, uh, working with different kinds of people and, how, and how, to get, how to get the best out of them and how to get the best out of the film and you know, what, what, their, what their vision is. And so I think I, it gave me an opportunity to learn a lot about that kind of stuff. And I think it was really helpful for building up a portfolio for then when I went to, I was applying for film school, I could, I could show them a bunch of different, a whole range of different kind of things I'd done. And uh, those it ranged from horror to comedy to sort of more naturalistic drama. And I felt like all of those things kind of fed into what I, the, the then films that I worked on. Wow, a lot of those shorts are pre-film school. Yes, eighty uh, percent of them, I think. Are. I am intrigued by uh, you talking about one of the things that you learned doing those shorts was kind of the political or social yeah. side of it. Yes, That's something yes. I don't think we talk about enough, and it's super, mm. super important. Um, can you think of any specifics, or would you mind elaborating on the things that you learned socially and politically? Yeah, of course. I think. I guess it was working out how to build up a sense of trust with the director and how important that was and how kind of without that, the edit process can be quite difficult, just quite tricky, really. Um, Because I think especially, how about with first-time directors who were very much like, had a strong vision and they knew, or they thought they knew exactly how it needed to be shot by shot. To be able to contribute anything as an editor, I first needed to get them to trust me and let me in and let them understand that I wanted to make, also make it the best it could be. And so then they, then they became op- open for me to uh, try out stuff and show them and, and go, how about we, how about this way? Or, you know, it might not work at all, but let me just show you this version of it. And realising how important that was, I think, was really useful and helped me a lot when 
when I worked on, on sort of longer form stuff with first-time directors, like with Blue Story, for instance, I, I, I ended up actually getting quite a lot of freedom in terms of the edit. But I think that was because I'd, I'd realised that right at the beginning I needed to build up that sense of trust and let uh, Raps know that I understood the story and uh, I understood what his vision was. It's tricky with a lot of new directors, right? It's a little different with somebody that's worked with a bunch of other editors and they've kind of, oh, I get it, it's uh, a new guy. Most of the projects I've been on, it's been kind of, I've been kind of the first editor that they've worked with. Actually, with, with Blue Story, so I was kind of the first editor he'd worked with, but on the shorts that he'd done, his DP uh, was the editor. So he was used to having his editor on set with him at all times and kind of having that communication constantly. And so for Blue Story, he'd asked for me, well, he kind of arranged for me to be um, either, sometimes on, on some days of the shoot, I was on, literally on set with him. Some days I was in the unit base, like a mile away. Um, and so I could, const- and I was assembling as, as we were shooting, so I could feedback and let him know, you know, things weren't, work- well, uh, weren't working or if, you know, if I had any ideas for pickups or anything else we could do. When you are temping stuff, um, do, is that something you discuss with the director? Is it something you just get a feel for from the script and then you say, hey, I, I really want to, uh, I think this would be great. Yeah, um, God, I love music. I love I love using music in the edit. And I also I really love the sort of relationship with composers. Uh, I think the last three in Blue Story were, were quite different. So with the last three, we knew the composer was going to be, we were actually kind of hoping he was going to ha- be able to help give us his own temp stuff during uh, the edit. But he was, because that's how we'd worked in the past. We'd done, I think, two or three projects together with the three of us. Um, at director, director, composer, and me, and that's how we've been working, and it's been really great, like collaboration. But he had just gotten the job as the main composer for, or the composer for Doctor Who, for a new season series that they were doing. So he was totally <laughs> unavailable for the, almost the entirety of the edit. Um, and so we were using the attempt that I'd found, a kind of mixture of stuff that felt that I discussed with the director, and I knew what his references were. So we were putting from Moonlight, some classical music. I'm trying to remember what else. Uh, quite a lot of like art, 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 more art house films. Um, like let's, yes. say, let's say I hire you for a new movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would be your approach as to where you even start to look? Well, I think it would depend a lot on, on what kind of film it was. So I'd, have, I'd, I'd go through the script and have my own interpretation of what kind of film it was and what, what, uh, what musically I was hearing. Um, and try and find films that sort of felt like they were contemporary, uh, contemporaries of it, or aesthetically kind of in the same ballpark. Um, I also have chats with the director on what what they were thinking in terms of music and the soundscape of the film. And then yeah, and then go on a hunt for the scores that I well I that I remember. Well, I have quite a big, I have a drive with a big library of temp stuff, and and then also uh, I'd have a look online and try and find stuff that felt like it was sitting in the right place and, and, and I could see working with, with the material. So I do that before, before anything had been shot and then during uh, the assembly would start, would then probably even go back and, and look for more stuff as I, as I saw it start coming together. 
Yeah. Uh, my, my approach is similar. I definitely, like if I, I think, okay, this is a family drama and maybe the yeah. family's breaking up or it's like, yeah. what other films are like that? Oh, I Am Sam is kind of like this movie. And then yeah. I'll go yeah. pull the I Am Sam score. And you're like, oh, yeah. that's all Beatles music. Okay, that's not going to work. And then you, know, <laughs> you, you, yeah. you choose something else. But it's, yeah, a similar a similar approach to music. Yeah. What about MLEs? Um, you have been talking about being on Avid. Uh, and yeah. going to film school, have you used any other NLEs? Have you tried Premiere or Resolve or? Yeah, um, uh, Premiere a lot uh, for especially on the shorts. Actually, probably most of the shorts I've done have been in Premiere. Um, and then the first, as I mentioned earlier, the first feature I did with Shola, um, the Richard Last Tree, the really, really, really tiny film. Um, but that was done. That was my first feature, and we did that in Premiere. <laughs> and then it got a bit tricky, just because it 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 was quite early on, and it wasn't very stable. And I realised as the project started getting bigger and bigger, and I kept getting more and more crashes, and it started getting a bit laggy. That uh, we I mean, we did it. We finished the whole film in Premiere, but we had to split it into the, we had to split reels into different projects. And so then after that, uh, the next feature that I did, I decided to use an Avid. Is there a reason why you switch back and forth or, or is it just Avid because of the, how stable it is for larger projects? Yeah, well, I think, I think what I prefer about Premiere is its um, flexibility with, especially with the, the other Adobe, other parts of the Adobe suites like Photoshop and After Effects and that kind of stuff and being able to go back and forth. I find that really, really useful, especially on like short form stuff. Like I just uh, did a commercial where a lot of the it's quite ended up being quite like, sort of graphic heavy and we kept switching back and forth in titles and in after effects and just that flexibility and, and speed as wouldn't have been able to do in avid as, well not just not as easily uh but then having that stability and that sense of like stable organization is, is really useful for long form i've been listening to a lot of podcasts with directors lately and they talk about controlling tone as being a really important thing for a director to do and with some first-time directors i would think that they might have an issue with that is that something that you try to control yourself as an editor as much as you can to help even those tone changes out i think i try to help as much as possible i know like with the last tree i was uh, so I was in the unit base. I was there the whole time during the shoot, assembling as, as we were shooting. And basically I was only, I think I was only like a few hours behind the, what was being shot because my, I was working with my DOT and, and assistant and they were great and uh, I was getting stuff through quite quickly. And so I was able to quite often feedback to the director on whether I thought, whether I thought tonally something was fitting in with the scenes that they'd shot before, because it was, quite, it was all at least 90% chronological in terms of how they'd shot it. So I, I could see the scenes before um, and and how they were feeding into that scene. And I, I, I could let them know if... Uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, I remember a day... Actually, it, was, it wasn't so much tone. It was more like a technical thing. But I remember a day where they were shooting in a school, outside the school, and it was, just very, it was just really windy. And they weren't sure if they were going to have to use the scene or whether they needed to find another day to reshoot it. And... Then I remember the producer and director came back to me and was standing over my shoulder going, is this usable or do we have to like find, reshoot it? And obviously they're all strapped for time. So I was kind of doing a really, really rough assembly, just like give them the thumbs up or, you know, thumbs down. On those cases where you're trying to cut something together really quickly, what's the key? What do you drop? Do you just say, hey, I'm just going to look at selects? Do you just, just start with the last take? What do you do when you're trying to cut very fast? I try, I mean, I try and look at the, yeah, the last take, last couple of takes. Um, on that specific example, I didn't have script, script notes at that point. Uh, but if I do, then I'd look at what the preferred take is and start from there. And then sort of build up a sense of just through that, 
roughly as when I'm going this select sequence, uh, building up a sense of what I think, what my immediate reaction is for what that journey through the scene might be, and then cut that together and then have a watch and it will probably be terrible, but then I'll go, oh, okay, that, for that bit, maybe I need another option. So then I'll go through the takes just for that, that shot. Or I'll go, oh, we will need the, uh, the wide here instead. And then I'll, I'll look at the other wides. Um, but that will give me a really good sense of what the, what the overall shape of the scene will be and whether, whether, it's, whether it's working. Right. And, and all, if all you're trying to do really is to figure out whether the scene's going to work later, then that's <laughs> probably good. Yeah. Let's face it. We always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes just having enough storage isn't enough because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing, and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Each system comes with built-in software, so you search, tag, and preview all of your storage, backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get up to 10% off of new EVO systems by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. Um, Walter Murch had another great, uh, I'm, I don't want to drop names, but hey, you know, oh, no, when, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you, when it's Walter Murch, I think it's okay. So yeah. he said a great thing to me. I will pass this wisdom on to you. Yeah, um, great. It's not the last take. It's always the second to the last. Oh, take. hugely. Yes. That, yeah. So yeah. that's, that's what I meant yeah. when I meant the look at the last two takes. Cause it was actually, it's, I find it's always the second before last. Yeah. What do you uh, think that it's about? The directors I work in and the whole team are working up to try and get, trying to nail it. And then, and then it works. They have a moment where it just works and then they go, oh, let's just do one more just to be sure. Or it's let's, now we've got that. Let's try another version. Um, but that, that second to last take is normally always the one that, the one that goes in. Yeah, you and Walter Murch, there you go. His take is basically that you get to a peak and yes. then you realize that it's heading the wrong direction and you're like, okay, <laughs> we're done. But you don't yes. want to say don't print it because then the actors feel bad. So you say, yeah, yeah. but now you don't print anything. But yeah, it's always the <laughs> second to the last take, not the last take. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Very interesting. So talking about a little bit about the chance of working with an assistant, for example, what's your take on the, the politics of uh, an assistant or what you need to teach an assistant or how you choose an assistant? It's just really interesting for me when doing The Last Tree was that it was the first time that I had an assistant. Um, and so, and it was also the first time my assistant had been an assistant. So we were both together kind of sort of trying to navigate what the, what, how that relationship works and uh, what I can and can't ask them to do and how best they can help me. Well, kind of the relationship kind of started on the, on the shoot because they were, uh, they were on the shoot with me all the time. And, and it was a bit, so slightly less, I think, stressful than if we'd started the edit together and it was all sort of hands on deck immediately. And so it was, a bit, it was a little bit more relaxed because they were only getting rushes every so often, and so we could kind of work out during the shoot what what the what our relationship was going to be like. And so then I, I 
I kind of sort of built it up as as we went along, and, and I think initially just started asking for uh, just the files to be the bins to be laid out and that kind of stuff, and then as you went along, I started asking, oh, could you maybe build the select role for that scene, and then I was asking stuff like. Because uh, I like to do a lot of line breaks, I find that really useful. And so I started asking for that kind of stuff, and then then be asking opinions on what do you think about this, and and then I'd ask, I'd encourage as much as possible to, for her to also cut together anything that she you know grabs her fancy, and then try to find time to give her feedback on on that kind of stuff, and and a lot of actually a lot of sound work. I like to do, I really love music, but also I love uh, using sound, a lot of temp sound in the edit. Sort of as we get further and further along the edit, I'd kind of give her a scene and answer, can you, can you lay up, you know, some temp for this and give her sort of a rough idea of what I was thinking and then, and then leave her to do that. And I think that kind of stuff is really useful. For me anyway, when I was doing, when I was just doing commercials, I found that really good training because it's meant I could start thinking about how the scene was being put together and how the sound could feed into that. I think it led to me being more interested in uh, using sound as an editor. You mentioned, uh, I think, The Last Tree was shot almost chronologically. How does that change how you relate scenes to each other when they're being actually shot in order? It was interesting, actually, because it, it ended up, the first assembly was, well, I mean, it was, a, it was a script. It was following the script, and it was very, very linear, very following the character's journey that they're going on. It was kind of, cause kind of a coming-of-age film, and so you, you were following them going through that very closely, and then I think after that assembly, we... And that, obviously that was, how it was, that was how it was written and that was how it was shot, so that's, that's what we did. After that, when we started uh, working on the next cut, we started thinking about ways of... It was then kind of looking at it as a whole and then going, what, what are the ways we can actually maybe play around with it a bit more and, and trying, like, flashbacks and flash forwards and that kind of stuff. And the journey happens over quite a big uh, amount of time and space. So the character starts off in, uh, like, a small small part of the countryside in England and then they move to London and it's about them trying to refine themselves in a whole new like way of life and then they end up at the end of the film going to following their roots back to Nigeria, refinding themselves there and, and so it was about following that journey but also then seeing if there was ways of teasing where the journey was going to go early, earlier on. So talk to me a little bit about how the structure changed as you got past your editor's cut. There weren't any like, really big structural changes in terms of moving whole sections of the story around. One of the things we had to do was work out because there's kind of three, like Moonlight in a way, there's like kind of three sections. So there's him as, as a sort of young child and then him as a teenager in London and then him as a teenager in Nigeria. And they're quite sort of separate sections. And it was kind of one of the things, one of the things we had to do in the edit was work out a way of transitioning <laughs> that kind of felt... Because the director was very keen on making something that... that felt cool and felt like kind of unique to the story that we were telling. We were, we were like, we're trying to avoid, you know, cutting to black and then going three years later. And so it was kind of trying to work out a way of, of doing that in a, in a way that felt like hadn't been done before. So we ended up basically finding, finding the shot that kind of summed up where the character was in sort of part one and that similar shot in part two. And then we sort of did this like staccato intercutting thing between the two shots. It's some quite, sort of quite intense sound design to give you a sense of like transitioning. And so the, at the end of the part one, we'd cut to black and then have this sort of, sort of more impressionistic thing happen. And then, and then we'd go into part two and you got a sense of, oh, okay, now this character has changed from this person into this person. 
and while we're talking about kind of structure and and building mm-hmm. the the whole thing together, um, when you're editing, especially something that's not shot in order, how quickly do you try to put scenes together, uh, one scene to the next? If you've edited scene two and scene three isn't for another week and a half, do you yes. instantly try to, as soon as you cut scene three, do you try to put it next to scene two or do you wait? I wait, I try to work in scenes for as long as possible, at least during the shoot and during the assembly. And then once I feel like the scene is where it should be, at least when it's, as it's on its own, where it should be, then I'll start putting together sort of sequences and seeing how things are flowing together. Because I feel what works for me anyway is working in those sort of mini scenes and trying to get them, trying to have make sure that there's like a mini story being told in that scene, that it works in and of itself. And you're getting a sense of like a mini arc and a, you know, structure in it. And then when, when I start working in sequences and then reels, it's, my brain's kind of switching and I'm going, okay, what, what, how is this first 10 minutes working as a, as a section? And what is the journey that we're going from, from minute one to minute 10? And then trying to get that working. And, that mean, and then that will mean going to scenes and maybe going, that really lovely shot that I put at the end of that scene, we don't need it. Or we need something else in order to help take us into that next scene and, and so on. So I try to keep those as, as kind of separate uh, parts of the process, I guess. Sure. And so, in other words, putting all that stuff together, maybe when you do the assembly, yes. you know, yeah, yeah. You're, you're waiting to the assembly. Yeah, I basically do the same thing. But mm-hmm. lots of editors are, as soon as they know they've cut a scene that's next to another scene, they put them together immediately. Um, you're working on some other projects. Are, are any of these new projects you're working with on with uh, people you've worked with before? Are those relationships on those shorts and stuff um, bearing fruit? Uh, actually, well, I actually just worked on a project that was very different from anything I've done before and also with a totally new team. So it's my first project in a uh, television project uh, for this two-part series coming out next year called The Pale Horse. It's like an Agatha Christie adaptation. And uh, yeah, and it, I mean, it was actually not, it, it wasn't, a, a, no, no one, I hadn't met anyone before on, on, uh, on the project. That was quite new, it was very interesting. Just an interesting experience just working in TV land and seeing what that was like and how that differed from film. And did uh, it give you a chance to work with other editors and having that yes, know, social yeah. experience of, oh my gosh, it's so nice not to be alone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So actually, that was, yeah, that was, my, that was my first time we had, uh, it was two of us, me and Eve. Yeah, it was just like a really sort of collaborative process and w- working together. And we both, I think by the end of the project, we'd, we'd both had a pass on every scene, I think. So it was just so interesting to see, like what to work out like, what her style was, what what are the kind of things that she's like good at or, or prefers doing and how can I compliment that? Because I came, I came in after she'd already started. So I was, I was trying to work out like, how can I compliment, how can I give, how can I give myself in, into this in a way that is going to be complimentary and not just start becoming a sort of schizophrenic edit. So it's very much like working out that I think she's Eva's really, really great with dialogue and she'd kind of focus on that kind of stuff. And then I would, I think they brought me in basically to shake it up a bit and try to see how, how, bold we could we could go and so i'd come in and go oh how about we edit this into sort of a non-linear montage sequence i mean they're all like after that amount of time on it they'd come quite close and so me with fresh eyes could sort of input that kind of stuff did you yeah, find me. yourself like <laughs> trying to deconstruct her sequences and going oh that's how she did it i like it. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, 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 yeah because I, I think the first thing i do is, is watch watch her assemblies and just go oh that's really interesting because I'd, I'd not thought of doing it in that way or She's picked out this moment that I would have used this for, but I think this, you know, this works better. I think one of the really great things, useful exercises I did at film schools, we'd all, to the eight of us, 
eight editors and we'd all cut. We'd all be given the same rushes for a scene uh, and then we'd all cut it separately and then watch them all back to back. And it was so fascinating <laughs> because you'd see eight different versions of the same thing and very, in some cases, quite different versions. And in each one you'd go, oh, okay, well, I, I preferred that thing I did in mine, but this whole thing is so great that they've managed to find and that sometimes I'd watch it and go where did they find that shot from I don't don't remember seeing that and just that yeah, yeah sense of each person having a totally different uh, way of looking at things I think it's just I find really interesting that's why I like really love reading all the articles because I, as you say like everyone just does things differently uh, I did a avid master editor's class kind of oh, yeah. um, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago and we did the same thing where we sent rushes to every student and then yeah. when you came to class, everybody had their their edit, and we watched them yeah. back to back. And it was so interesting to see, mm-hmm. one, how different they were, but then, like, certain shots, everyone made the same exact yeah, edit. Yeah, that too, that too. Yeah, yeah, And And how the, some moments will be picked out by everyone because they're just like, universally good. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then some bits will, will, yeah, will be different. How does sound design help you create either a better edit or a more true story or whatever sound design does for you what what why do you, why do you care about sound design i guess i f- i feel like over the over the projects i've worked on i've realized how useful it is as part of the as part of storytelling and how important it is uh and how how it can actually communicate parts of the story better than the picture uh in a way sometimes and so and it was actually something i think i also started picking up from when like Walter Murch talks about talks about it. I think he obviously, I mean, he's a sound designer as much as he's an editor and, and has all that experience. Mm-hmm. And I kind of sort of made it my goal when I started film school was the one thing I'm make sure I do is start working out how to use sound design more uh, in in my offlines. And like with something like The Last Tree that is incredibly subjective and internal, it was actually really vital that the, the sound design was there in the edit. You could get a sense of all that kind of stuff going on. Because I think without it, if you'd watch the offline, you'd go, why is it so experimental? I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't understand you know, why the shot is doing this thing. Uh, but then once the sound there, you get, you go, oh, okay, well, this, the picture isn't doing it, but that story beat or uh, emotional beat is happening in, in the sound. And I remember something I feel quite proud of is that we sent it to, uh, so we premiered at Sundance this year. Um, and we were very quite up to the, uh, the deadline in the, in the offline and we had to send the offline edit with my sort of temp sound design to see if we wouldn't get into Sundance. Then we got in, which is really great, and then they wrote, an article, wrote like a bio of the film on the website and a lot of it was talking about how interesting the sound design was and how, you know, part of the film's like... Part of the good thing about the film is is how interesting, like how the subjectivity you get from the all the layers of sound design, and I remember reading that, going, "Oh, that's great! That's, that was me." <laughs> Can that you was... uh, describe for someone who maybe hasn't seen the film yes. what some of those specifics were? Like, how are you saying that you get into the internal headspace or whatever mm-hmm. of the character through sound design? I mean, it was about trying to make sure you were hearing the world as he was hearing it, rather than a kind of objective view of it I think uh, like there was a scene I remember in particular where we were well the main characters so the main character Femi he's just he's just gotten high he's also just been in a fight and there's and then the following scene there's this kind of kind of half dream sequence where he's like walking back into school you kind of don't really know he doesn't really know where he is and what's going on but it's all really confused and 
uh, heightened. And we, I remember we did this thing, the sound design, where we'd take all the dialogue tracks and put them through sort of reverb filters and just create a sense of like, and overlay them and get a sense of just deliriousness, I guess, overall. And then work out how to communicate that in the edit as well. So I remember, so after the stream sequence, he then goes into a class. He's called into a class by his teacher. He then sort of lectures him. The first cut we did of this was actually quite linear and very quite observational. And then we were, we kept getting notes from our execs and being like, oh, see, we need to like work out how to make it more in his head. How do we get, how do we see it, as, feel it as he's feeling it? I remember going back then, just going back to the edit one day and just going, okay, let's just delete the whole scene and go back to the rushes. And then pick, well, picture-wise, picking those moments that felt like a lot more confused and uh, kind of there was a lot of stuff like before and after the end, before the beginning of takes and after the end of takes. It didn't feel, it didn't feel as controlled and it felt a bit sort of loose. And, uh, and then in the sound design, yeah, doing this sort of layering, reverby thing, just try and get a sense of disorientation. And then that kind of building, building up to a climax over the course of the scene. Two things that you said in there that, I, that struck me. One is um, that you scratch the whole scene. Because I find that sometimes when you're realizing that a scene is not working and you, you try to fix it, there's no yeah. way. It, it yeah. just doesn't work. You've got to start yeah. from scratch again. And the other thing that I wanted you to talk a little bit about was uh, the idea of using pieces that are not really in the scene, like the, using mm-hmm. the before and the after action and after cut. Yeah. Because you, yeah. get, you get a totally different sense with those portions of the scene. Completely, completely. Um, and I, and I, think, I think that part of that comes from my uh, working in commercials is that because you're not looking for, it's not traditional, this is the take, this is the bit that you're using, this is the preferred take, this is what's going in the edit. It was more kind of looking for those moments that really felt true to the scene. Um, and I, th- I think those exist anywhere in, in a shot, you know, uh, before, yeah, before or after a take. And something I'd asked my assistant to do, actually, that I think was quite useful was, well, one was whenever there was a take that looked like it was just a mistake and, you know, was unusable, rather than just, like, totally throw those away, I'd have a, I'd have a bit in the top of my project that was just uh, those shots. When I had time, I'd go into those and review and just see if, if there was any moments in there that I thought actually could fit into the edit. Um, and if you did, there were actually, for the last three, actually, there was a lot of, there's this kind of, technique that we'd do where every so often we'd have these kind of uh kind of sort of of b-roll cutaways that didn't really relate so much to the scene before or after but would give you a sense of time passing and also this very kind of uh, felt very i don't know what the word is sort of stylized and internal and um not like it wasn't like a wide shot of a city it'd be like close up of a uh a hallway with with a spider crawling across the wall or something like that um, and these were these were all shots that I just pulled out of things that when the camera had just been running or you know the, the end of a take where the camera had been pointing down and I was like oh that's really interesting or you know there was, there was a shot that was uh, slicking down a street at night time and it was just they just switched the focus and everything's just out of focus and that ends up being in the film and we ends up building a language with these through through the through the through the edit. I love it. I can see why that on that TV show they were like, "Let's bring this guy in to shake things up." You know, <laughs> they'll look at these stupid shots that nobody's supposed to use and put them in the movie. And, and when you were doing that, when were you finding you were putting that in between scenes more, or in the middle of scenes, or 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 anywhere? Specifically, those kind of weird shots would kind of end up being in between. Is where is where it started feeling like, and this is actually this was quite useful edit, uh, shooting chronologically. It was 
it was quite useful getting a sense of the rhythm and feeling like, oh, this scene and this scene, it just feels too close. Like it feels like you need to spend some time in between taking in what's just happened really and feeling like the character's taken in, taken that in as well. And so that that's when I start looking for those moments and building up a sense of just time passing really. Yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of times people, you know, that's where some shoe leather might go. Like, oh, let's just watch yeah. the character travel from one place to another. But exactly. if you don't have yeah. that, yeah. you still want it. You still want that yes. space. Um, and I think actually that classroom scene that I talked about earlier was the first uh, point in the edit where I started going, let's pull out all the random shit of this <laughs> in this scene and try it all in the edit. And that's kind of what it ended up being was all the bits that uh, kind of accidents or, you know, things that weren't, just weren't scripted. So when you're constructing that and you're like going, okay, we need something that's less observational, as you said, yeah. mm-hmm. did you find that you could cut the visuals and then do the sound design or did the sound design have to be at the same time? How were you building that? Yeah, I'm trying to remember that. I think it was a mixture of both. I think I, I think what I did first is I went through back to the rushes and pulled out all the, all the things, all the weird stuff that I thought was interesting and then put that to one side and built up a kind of, I think almost kind of that radio edit of of the scene uh, because there's basically the scene starts and there's dialogue that happens and it sort of escalates and gets more and more uh, aggressive and the two characters kind of have a sort of tussle and then and the main character sort of starts breaking down and so it's building up that story through the sound and trying to find ways of doing it in a kind of more internal subjective way and then that's when I came up with the idea of you know, putting some stuff in the reverb and overlaying dialogue and getting a sense of you're not watching it as it as it's actually playing out and kind of repeating and repeating stuff as well. Then I went back to those bits I'd pulled out uh, the picture and sort of lay those in and that and then that meant adjusting the sound again, obviously. Uh, and then it kept going sort of back and forth. Uh, and we'd end up with sections where I then start repeating the picture and you'd see the same action happen two or three times from like, two or three to kind of two or three takes. That's I mean, that's actually what also why I like working with uh, select reels is that you kind of accidents kind of happen like that where you see different moments back to back and that uh, sometimes causes me to go, oh, that's interesting. What if, what if we did that in the edit? Or you know, what if we did something similar to that? And so in the scene, you'd have these, this action play out two or three times and each time would be slightly different and, and then you get a sense of just development and, and what the character was going through in, in, in the scene in a kind of, more, kind of more impressionistic way. Do you think that uh, with your experience in spots that you'll go back to that or are you doing, you're cutting... Uh, TV spots as well now? or Yeah, I mean, actually, I haven't done any for a while. I'd, uh, since uh, the ones I'd assisted in, because basically I left that company, even though I loved, I loved working there, but I left it because I wanted to move into drama, which is what I was interested, what got me into film in the first place. And then I, was, so I went to film school then and uh, graduated last last year, February. And then I've since been just doing films, but then it was basically just a, a, one of the directors who went to film school with me was shooting a commercial and asked me if I wanted to, to do it. And I was like, oh, it'd be interesting to see just what that world is like again. But I, um, I could see just from your description of how you edit and the, the mm-hmm. thoughts that I'm like, that'd be a real interesting thing to see in a spot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I, think, uh, I think I definitely want to, like from future career-wise, I definitely want to keep switching between uh, both drama and also documentary and I've done some animation projects and I just like the gear changes, I guess, that happen in my brain mm-hmm. when doing something completely different. You've done some documentary? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've done, uh, actually the first sort of feature project that I worked on was a documentary, um, sort of observational documentary. And then I've done, I've done a bunch of short documentaries. And then while at film school, you kind of do everything. So I was working on 
working with the documentary directors there. Uh, you got anything that's going to go to Sundance this year? I have a short this year that's playing called The Devil's Harmony. It's about fun, a fun, weird film about an, an a cappella group that in high school that basically realise they can, if they sing at a certain frequency, they can sing people into a coma. And they start sort of <laughs> wreaking revenge on anyone that had <laughs> done anything wrong to them in the school. Uh, so it's very, it's really very fun, very fun sort of musical. <laughs> very dark. <laughs> I'm trying to think. So it's like Glee crosses with, uh, I'm trying to think what film that would be. Glee and Carrie. Yeah, Glee yeah. Carrie. That's, that's exactly the film. <laughs> All right. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about specifically? Because I think we got a ton of great information. I mean, there's actually, there's one thing with Blue Story um, that might be quite interesting. Well, it's quite interesting for me as an editor because basically the director has this style. I don't know if you've seen his shorts he's done online, the the video uh, YouTube series. But basically he has a very distinct style where he'll um, kind of narrate what's happening through rap. Um, it happens less so in the in the feature than it does in the shorts, but in the shorts he'll kind of do it almost throughout and there'll be very few moments where the characters actually speak for themselves. Um, but in the feature, he wants to kind of move on from that and, and show that he can actually direct, basically direct scenes. Uh, but then it, it was very much a kind of, almost like one man Greek chorus where he'd come in, I think it ended up being like roughly every 20 minutes and kind of break down what's been happening and, and tell you what's going to sort of hint at what's going to come next. It's really fascinating for me as an editor because I'd not had that experience before. Um, but it also became really useful when we've had stuff where we had to like shorten the first, I think, 15 minutes of the film and try and condense it into a montage. And I could try out stuff and then go, oh, raps, what if you just said this line here? Then people would get that bit and then you wouldn't need this whole text in the dialogue or stuff where something's got a bit confusing and we were like, oh, we could just, we'll just stop here. We'll build a montage out of some cutaways and we'll get you to explain what's happening. Uh, and it will feel totally natural and not, not kind of... Uh, um, not on the nose. Or yeah, it just wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't feel on the nose because that was the whole style of the film. Uh, and so that, that became a really fun playground of... Because he could literally come in one day and I'd show him something and then go away and the next day I knew I was going to get a rap that would fit in here and I could then cut to and it was became quite a fun sort of back and forth. <laughs> did you dare ever scratch the rap yourself or did you just say you've got to write something? <laughs> oh, no, no. It was always, you have to write something. Because <laughs> he gave me all the instrumentals so I could, I could put it in and like show him like an a a instrumental version of what I think could happen and I'd discuss, oh, uh, I think you should talk about this and this and this and this way. And I'd often actually go, he'd, 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 give, he'd come back with raps and I'd go, oh, actually, I think that's a bit confusing. Can you say it in different... But then he'd have the challenge of like trying to work out how to make it rhyme and uh, trying to make it <laughs> trying to make it work as a rap that was interesting to listen to, uh, but also communicated the story that we needed to tell. Part of the use of an editor on a film, I think, is to do that. Like I watched, um, have you been watching his Dark Materials? Is that this British show? I've heard of it, but I've not watched it myself. Um, well, I I just started watching it, and I I mean I don't know any of the team involved, but um, I don't know if. If you've read the books, but they have basically it's about these characters who have like demons that are animals that uh, follow them around and have their own sort of personalities. Uh, and I remember watching, starting to watch it and thinking, it'd be so useful as an editor if something wasn't working because you can get any of those demons to, to just explain and and it won't. Right. You can leave that after the shoot because they're not they're, they're all 
uh, done in CG, done in post. So you can you can change that at any point during the edit. And just I think ADR. Finding those yeah. ways of yeah, finding the interesting ways of getting an ADR. Don't feel uh, you know, you're not going to notice as, as an audience. I think. It's, it's, I think it's, yep, that's definitely useful uh, to not have to go back and reshoot. I remember hearing a story from Eddie Hamilton about Mission Impossible, <laughs> where yeah. the movie was too long. And they just went back and reshot one scene that instead of like going to Vienna and then going to Madagascar, they're like, let's just yes. go to Madagascar. That way they could cut out all of Vienna. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they had yeah, to reshoot. Yeah. And then this way with a wrap mm -hmm. or with uh, dark materials mm -hmm. creatures or with a yeah. agent, you just go, <laughs> we'll just knock it out with some audio. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Perfect. M. Demary, wonderful to meet you. And you uh, it's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Mthamiri Nkemi. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a film-making or film-loving friend.